Welcome to episode 198 of Control the Controllables. And today we have a Grand Slam winning doubles coach. And when you get a coach of this level on, they want to share their tips with you. And that's exactly what David O'Hare will be doing with you today. Take control of your own development. You know, I think sometimes when you're internally motivated, you know, if it's you that's the driving force behind your development, I think that's exponentially more powerful than relying on a coach to externally motivate you to achieve whatever it is. But I think if it really comes from within, it's much more powerful. And there's plenty more that Dave will be sharing throughout the episode. And a little bit about Dave. Dave was quite late to tennis. He he wasn't an overachiever in his junior years. But then he went on to Memphis University in America where he actually was a roommate of Joe Salisbury, who he now coaches. And he got to the dizzy heights of number three in the nation, NCAA, and then went on to play on the ATP Tour where he reached a career high of 117 on the doubles tour before injuries Stopped his career a little bit early. He's an Irish Davis Cup player. He still plays for Ireland. And he now is the coach to Joe Salisbury and Rajiv Ram. And has been with them for the last two and a half years. Winning the US Open with them in 2022. And he has a wealth of experience already at the mere age of 33. And here's Dave to tell his story. So Dave O'Hare, big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Great. Thank you very much for having me on, Dan. Dave, it's it's been a while coming. We've been we've been promising this for a while. It's great to have you. And there's so many topics that I think we can jump into today. We've just spoken for about an hour and a half before we've even started. If only <laughs> if only we had a camera and a recording on that. It would have made an extra special podcast, but lots to jump into. But to set the context, a lad from Ireland, whether we like it or not, it hasn't been a hotbed of tennis over the last fifty or hundred years. So how does yeah. a boy how does a boy from Ireland get into get into tennis instead of Gaelic football or rugby? Well, yeah, I, I mean I played played Gaelic football and, and and hurling at school. But there's something about just the responsibility of the results kind of being in my hands that I really enjoyed. Um, you know, you could kind of play a blinder as a goalkeeper, but if your boys couldn't, your striker wasn't on form, you couldn't score. It was kind of like, oh, it's like not fun. So I kind of grew up in a in somewhat a tennis family. I mean, one would have been a bit of a tennis player growing up and I'm the youngest of four. So kind of grew up watching all my older siblings get lessons and spend okay. summers down in, in the tennis club. And, and that was kind of, that was my youth. Now, I think my journey was, you know, everyone's journey is different. And, and I think I'm actually only after I, I finished my playing career, am I quite proud of, of the obstacles that I overcame to be an Irish tennis player and, you know, kind of just stumbled over every, every hurdle that was kind of placed in front of me. But really it was late to, playing multiple days a week you know it was when you kind of really when I was 15 16 that I kind of started to get a bit more of the bug and had a kind of bit of a anomaly of a result making the final of Fitzwilliam like our national tournament and that you know afforded me the you know an invite out to 
National Tennis Center. I had a great coach, uh, Spanish guy, Javier, that took a real interest in okay. me. So when I had that, Javier de Castro, and I had that interest from him and Owen Casey was a big part of my, my junior career and development. So so that was um, really my first intro. And then I got a bad wrist injury. So then I finished my, my leaving cert, uh, like the equivalent of A-levels. Got a couple offers for colleges in the States. And, and that's really what kind of, elevated my level just to have good facilities good weather and, and great people to practice with on a daily basis as well as access to such competitive matches so i'd be a big proponent of, of the college system i know it did me a world of good and it really suited my personality um i feel like i'm not maybe the most competitive guy but having responsibility for the team ultimately is what elevated my performance you know that kind of winning for someone else or you know i think deep down i am i'm a better team player than i am for just for david selfishly competing for me i, I always felt it was, it was much harder and and you know was fortunate enough to to meet joe there and and that's when we started playing professionally post-college and it was that same relationship that really kind of kind of spurred me on to you know doing it together was the real thrill for me and yeah. um, so yeah, so that's kind of how how I've ended up uh, ended up in this position that I'm at now. And I I love stories like that, Dave, because I was actually reading a, an article. I sent it to everyone at the academy yesterday, Nathaniel Lamons, and it yeah. was saying that he went to college and didn't even make the lineup, or was very low in the lineup in his first year, um, and then by the third year he felt he was starting to contribute. And now he sits at top 30 in the world, making a shed load of money, having all these amazing experiences that we dream of. And then I thought, Dominic Kopfer, I thought, does, can it just happen in doubles? You know, is it maybe singles? It's not possible. But then I go back to Dominic Kopfer, who came on the podcast, and he, similar to you, said he only played really a couple of times a week until he was 15, 16. Again, I know he went to Tulane University, wasn't really making the lineup, was low in the lineup first year. And he's gone on to be a top 30 singles player. Now, I know we're not saying that it's necessarily the main route to be able to do it, but I think it's important that people that are listening understand if you do have certain fundamentals in place, when the time comes right for you to add the volume in. So my question to you is, what are those fundamentals that you have to have in place that when the time comes right for you, let's say you went six years, seven years of volume from your last year of juniors through college, and then you went on and you were as high as 117 in the world ATP doubles, represented your country many times davis cup so a successful playing career what fundamentals have to be in place for that to be able to happen well i guess it's different for everyone but just passion for the sport you know i really felt like i yeah. was i was very privileged to to be in the position that i was to have been afforded these opportunities that i kind of just you know and not even that i actively sought them out but they just kind of that it somehow came my way you know even you know, for me, my senior year in college, I got called up for the Davis Cup team. You know, last minute call up because Sam Barry was was injured. So, you know, no real expectation on me. Yeah, I've kind of I was doing quite well with Joe. You know, collegiately we were ranked, you know, top four or five. And went out, played against Max Mirney and Alexander Burry with James Kluski. You know, Max obviously 
a legend of the game, 17 world singles, world number one, Olympic medals, the works played in Minsk and Belarus on his home soil, had match point in the fourth set tiebreak. I missed a 400 turn long. And if I could, if there's one point in my match that I could, that I wish I won, it would be that one because that would have been maybe one of the biggest upsets or in like Irish Davis Cup history to have won a match of that caliber. Did you commit um, to the forehand? I did, yeah. And it was so awesome. funny. I mean, there's so many amazing things that that happened that, you know, where you just kind of think it's fate. It's meant to yeah. be like I had this horrendous journey. I would have been a bit of a stickler for having my own rackets and all that kind of stuff. My rackets didn't come. You know, I missed connections and then I had to reroute through Vienna and then to Mint. You know, like all sorts of messing happened. You're kind of thinking, oh, this is a shambles. But I remember just thinking like all the way along in the flight, like I was so excited about the experience that was to yeah. come. I just was honestly, maybe I, I stepped away from visualization, but I could just see myself playing well. Like I could just see myself like really enjoying the experience and what it would what it would mean to represent your country. Um, so, so much stuff had kind of gone out of place that, you know, might've thrown me otherwise, but like there was such a bigger picture at head or such an amazing experience at head that, like it didn't even really matter. Like I was fine with all that other stuff going wrong. I was just like waiting for the yeah. game to get ahead, you know. So, so that was that was one fantastic experience. We ended up losing in the fifth set. Great match, but like just one of those matches where, albeit that you lost, it was just you know we had mom and dad and in, in, in on the sidelines in Minsk. You know, I was playing well. You know, albeit that that we ended up losing, it was still just. Yeah, the dream debut in many ways, you know, good competitors, no real expectations, you know, I even remember in like some of the press conferences, they're like, oh, do you think like it'll it'll extend into the Sunday? We'll probably like dust you up in the singles and you've no chance against Max in the doubles. So it just, yeah, it was pretty special. And then I'm lucky enough two weeks later or less than that, um, at Memphis, where I went to college, they have an ATB tournament, and Joe and I were lucky enough to get a wild card and played against the Bryan brothers. You know, lost two sudden death juices, and that was four and four. And you're kind of thinking, God, if I was taken to the court against a number one in the world in singles, I'd get cuffed. But here we are against the Bryans, and like someone holding her own now. Now, being part of, of the doubles world it, it kind of intimately a four and four is a very comfortable <laughs> day at the office but I was quite naive at the time thinking oh god there are three points away that we know we almost took them so but again just that 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 was a great experience we had a lot of support playing on the stadium court you know so the, those kind of thrills where I never really expected to find myself was uh yeah it was what drove me and 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 yeah, that that was that was what catapulted me into into playing professional tennis. Because prior to that, I was, I was quite content with the lifestyle that I had and trying to stay in the states and find work out there. And yeah, yep. just have a, a somewhat normal life. Yeah, I got totally overthrown by those two experiences, and it's kind of led me on this whirlwind adventure that is the ATP tour, I suppose. And there's such good stories, Dave, and I. I, I... I can't help thinking about the mindset, like almost hearing the little boy in you that's talking about that excitement of, of those events and 
maybe because of your journey, and I've mentioned Lamons, I mentioned Kopfer, there's there's plenty stories out there like yours where tennis didn't take over your life at such a young age to the point where you left school and you know, we, we see it now. It's a crazy world where everyone's leaving school at 10, 11, 12. But what it what it's given you there is there's this freshness of mind in lots of ways, like your ability to tolerate those situations, your ability to, to accept situations, your ability to have low expectations, you know, which I think are all quite powerful mindsets. The flip side of that, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is when you are a player who comes to the game a bit later on the international scene, yeah. you don't necessarily have an instant sense of belonging. That, that no. that's your, that your, um, and that's one of my big pluses of the ITF junior tour is when players play and they play junior grand slams, when they then go into the pro tour, they've kind of been there. Their, their peers are already been playing to a high level, it's like saying hello in the locker room in the corridor rather than being you kid on the block that takes a bit of time. Is that something that you have had to have had to deal with as a as a player? And then second part of that question is, is that something that's also took you some time as a coach as well? Because I think it is the sort of thing that can happen on, on both sides. Imposter syndrome, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the reality is that no one had achieved what I achieved in Irish tennis. So I didn't have, I mean, Klusky was a, was a good example. I'm not quite sure what his career high was, but he was 140s maybe. So yep. yeah, I, I kind of had a, a mate in him that, that knew what it was about. But ultimately it was kind of me trying to figure out my own schedule and trying to fail and definitely a sense of imposter syndrome. That no, one, no one hadn't done that before me <clears throat> you know definitely didn't feel feel like I belonged didn't feel like I deserved the right to take to the court to some of these with some of these players you know very much in my shell very much insecure in in my level and in, in my in my person at, at times and so I, I do think it was only much later in my career after I had one or two good results that I like began to feel like a good player on the court but but it's funny, you know, like even coaching top teams now, like even the wealth of experience that, that Joe and Rajiv have, you know, sometimes confidence can ebb and flow for them too. And I think if my playing self was able to witness yep. or be part of some of the conversations or, or or some of the, you know, just happenings that, that has gone within the team, I think... I've been like, oh my god, I'm totally normal. Like, it's totally normal yeah. to feel such a way. Here are two guys that have won major tournaments, and they still feel a little bit insecure at times, or yeah, fragile about their being on the court. Or if the level's not good enough, they can go within their shell. And that was certainly how I felt as a player. So it definitely is an interesting question, and and yeah, I don't know what why that frame of mind, why they can get hijacked when they've got countless achievements and accolades to bolster their self-belief yeah. and their confidence that, that they can't always tap into it. It would be amazing to have junior tennis players to witness it. 
because yeah. I'm relatively new to this ATP doubles, uh, you know, top of, top of the game, and I was blown away with it. You know, a little yeah. bit like I, I really shocked just how much, and we'll get into a couple of those things in, in a bit, but just yeah, the, the relationships, how people manage the relationships, how how they have doubts, insecurities. But then when you actually stop and you go, well, of course, they're human beings, right? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and, and for some reason, we put people on a pedestal and we think that these people we see on TV don't experience the same things that other people do, you know, yeah. and it's, which is crazy, you know, when you, when you logically think about it. So the normalization of that is, is a massive, massive thing, I think, to help people with emotional awareness, with their ability to to tolerate emotions and their ability to to be comfortable in their own skin. And and it takes sometimes you going through that journey to be able to get to those points. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean I think for me, I think if there's one thing I wish I had a great deal more of when I was on the tour is like a little bit of compassion for myself. Like a little bit of yeah. just like, yeah, you're doing you're doing good. Like you don't need to be I was so quick to maybe judge and compare and oh, this guy is doing this. And, you know, like at hundred and sitting at 117, if, if you'd asked me, oh, how are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm doing good, but there's still a hundred plus people ahead of me, like never content and actually like kind of appreciating how far I've come. And I'm not even sure if that was like mostly for myself. It was like, like a driving force of you kind of want to, you know, be one of the first Irish players inside the top 100 and maybe make some slams and that'd be great if that was me and that maybe might inspire a few other kids to pick up the racket and, and whatever else. But but I maybe got caught up in that more than I should have. I think if I was yeah. a little bit more grounded and actually like, actually, hang on, I've grown up on Astro Courts playing Tuesday, Thursday evenings, half six to eight. Not done too bad, you know, like with tractor and X balls and rain, like actually, you know, I think you could be pretty, pretty pleased with, with how far you've come, but there's never really a sense of that yeah. as a player. Um, and I think now, you know, as I talked before, we started recording, I'm still fortunate enough to play Davis Gough and well, hopefully I'll be playing in El Salvador after the US Open team is yet to be announced but fingers crossed I'll travel because it's great for my coaching it's great to to kind of reacquaint myself with the nerves I think on the sidelines you can distance yourself and, and you can expect so much from your players because you've seen them maintain such a high standard that it's kind of like oh like he was in position there he should have made that shot <laughs> you know yeah, like well it's yeah. like actually Christ if if you were out there, how would you have looked in the same situation? You probably wouldn't have been able to put your right foot in front of your left, you know? Yeah. So, like, I guess but we're obviously quite fortunate to, to be coaching British guys, so we know the, the level of detail and, and, and analytics that go into it. So we've, we've great access to, to all this kind of stuff, and, and yeah. it's easy to kind of lose yourself in the numbers and, and not kind of go into, like, the human traits or the emotional traits that, that we've all felt. And I'm a really big believer that it's all the same at every level, you know, the, the same nerves that I'm going to feel in a couple of weeks in my opening service game in Davis Cup is, you know, the next big milestone that it is for Joe if he's opening service game of the US Open or it's just, it's it's a threshold and once each player has overcome 
you soon forget about it and it's like it's the next thing the next of what's going to be my next tough circus game or my next situation where i'm going to feel a little bit you know jittery or whatever um but for me post playing career sense of compassion that i've developed myself for myself and i needed to because i'm not the pro player like there can be i wouldn't say i was ever one to struggle with anxiety or or you know performance pressure or anything like that but you can get you going is knowing that you're not practicing and you've got a davis cup match to play and you're like jesus like you're gonna have to try and relinquish the image i have of myself or my former self and just get on with it and just like yeah. accept it and, and crack on and and i found that to be very powerful and um, i think i maybe even told the story in another podcast and you know there's a real inspirational guy and back in dublin he's a heart surgeon cardiac surgeon and um, he does all mris as well but he's just i think he himself is the busiest mri machine in the world in blackrock clinic and he's 25 mri reports reports to write seven days a week you know absolutely top in the business and we sent a few podcasts and books back and forth and I hit with them in, in the mornings when, when I'm back in Dublin, he loves starting his day, you know, 6.15, 7.15, he'll get out and have a strike and then shoot off to work. And on this one particular day, whatever I'd sent him, he'd come out with his, his formula for success. Like what all these self-help books have is event plus reaction equals outcome. E plus R equals O. And it was really prevalent in my career. And what I'm maybe most proud of was in 2020, I think it was, or 2021, we were playing Davis Cup and it was a playoff match against Georgia. Simon and I won the first set. Second set, we get a break. So I think we're sitting down to change events, 3 2, I'm about to serve. Obviously, I've got the the background and doubles so I, I know what to do I know the high percentage plays and all that carry on so sure enough go out miss my first serve I miss the first volley low 15 okay, yeah first serve here I you know make it blah 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 miss my first serve Simon misses a volley or whatever so there I am staring down the barrel of 30 as a player I'd have been fuming like absolutely irate with myself to have invited this pressure or you know done exactly what I said I didn't want to do Sure enough, I go and miss my first serve again. But actually, for the first time, I was like objective in actually what had happened. I actually felt good. Like I, I remember as clear as day, popped the serve. It felt good, although I missed it long. Okay, so the yeah. event is bad, but my reaction is actually good. I was, that that one felt good. So in that moment, how do I feel stepping up to hit my second serve? So good, yeah. right? So I hit a good second serve. 15.30, hit a good first serve, 30 all, hit a good first serve game. Happy days. But like yep. as a player, if I'd have missed three first serves in a row and he, on my service game to consolidate the break, I'd have been absolutely livid with myself. So for me, that little journey there of my reaction or my response being yep. somewhat of compassion really enable performance to 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 kick on in that yeah. particular instance it's not, it's not always it's not always that way you know and there's another the same day that rory shared that i got on court with um when ireland's davis cup players now guy connor gannon who's 
actually in college at Memphis. And I kind of have an element of that, like big brother-ish, you know, where yeah. he can't quite beat me, albeit that he should. He kind of gets his own way or thinks too yeah. much. So we're playing just a silly game out of the hand and you know, best of five sets first to seven. And he's two sets up and he should win the third, but I stay alive somehow. But he gives me some couple cheap points. Then I think I kind of roll him in the fourth. He's still a bit caught up in that, the fact that he's not won. So sure enough, we're like two all in the fifth set out of the hand. And he plays like the dream point, perfect point. Couldn't Couldn't construct it better. And his reaction, albeit that he says, like, come on or whatever, it's so rooted in, like, frustration that it's actually gone to a fifth set or that he hasn't closed the match out. That it actually, how do his next few points look? So he lets out this, like, come on, but that's, you know, yeah. really, you know, like, we've all heard it. There's, like, anger or there's frustration. And then he plays just a couple shit points and I win the, I win the set, you know. And I, I really found that to be powerful and really fine. That. That's something that I would love to try and, yeah, I think that, that these boys could, could do with instilling in their own game. But I think that's where it's the paradox of the super high standards that they set for themselves is actually what's, you know, landed them in the position that they're at as Grand Slam champs, as world number ones. But I think a little, a little dose of compassion might be exactly what, what's needed to, to sustain it and to kick up and come Very good, Dave. And I think just as you're talking there, for me, perspective just comes in because it's like we're talking about there's different layers, right, of there's us as a junior tennis player, us as a professional tennis player, but there's there's us as a person and life after tennis and where and where tennis fits into the context of, of being just a human being and and living living life because winning grand slams does that make us successful or happy what's our success measure you know it doesn't necessarily yeah. you know and it's like and 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 it's just in something as high pressure as tennis but it would be the same with many sports many many industries it's very easy to just get caught up into that bubble you know and yeah. and when we can contextualize where tennis fits into our life and we can understand that it, yes, it's it's a role, and I talk about this all the time. The Nadal quote, you know, play play tennis like it's the most important thing in the world, but no, it's not. You know, and it's yeah. that kind of thing of like chucking yourself at something, but just having that, you know, like what you're saying about the compassion, having that little perspective, that little bit of compassion that says, well, actually, I've tried my absolute best. I've given absolutely everything, but. Yeah it's still really important that I take care of me. I take care of, of those other things. And I, I, I just think having success measures outside of, of tennis is, yeah. is something that I certainly wished I'd done when I played, you know, and you know, even we, we had Pat Cash on here recently and Pat talked about, you know, and he ended up having some quite challenging mental health battles because he actually said one of the worst things that happened to him. He didn't explicitly say that, but he implied that one of the worst things that happened to him in some ways was winning Wimbledon because he never, well, he just never lived back up to that. And he, and because that was, that was how 
success was measured in his world, he, almost to be successful again, he had to do that again. So yeah. then, so then when he didn't, so then when he didn't reach that, it then brought so many negative emotions and challenges that he he then felt like he almost had this mountain that he couldn't ever get up. You know, that's it, kind of yeah. par- paraphrasing what what he said. And and just to bring that a little bit closer to home for you, you know, you're coaching the the three time Grand Slam champions. You know, last year the boys won U.S. Open. They had an incredible year. They 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 won the end of year to a finals on top of the world, world's best team. I know they didn't finish world number one, but they kind of proven that they were the best team really over the last over the last few months then this year has been more of a challenge. You know, do you, I guess, being involved in that, and we see it a lot in doubles that these teams do great, do great, but they seem to have short memories because, you know, things start to go a little bit badly, then things can unravel a a little bit. How have you been able to deal with that as a coach? Uh, What have some of the challenges been for you guys? Well, yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah, trying to, at times it's trying to zoom, zoom back out, you know, I think, you know, to, comment on your perspective i think i think we can get caught up in these performances and i think keeping a perspective and uh, just you know we're kind of lose a sense of being fit and happy and healthy like it's 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 a real luxury and, and yeah they, the guy should be grateful but there's this onus and this pressure that they put on themselves to maybe supersede and to to go further and to challenge more and and do all those things. So I think this year has definitely been a challenging year for the partnership and and for everyone involved. You know, I think it's obviously a lot of fun contending week in, week out for big events and tournaments. And this year it's been it's been yeah, we, we haven't quite done that. We've had a couple of tight math matches and losses and got to a few positions of, of, of winning matches and not quite got over the line. And maybe the same could be said for last year too. And and then, you know, maybe you start to doubt yourself in these moments and, and the resolve that, you know, I think when you're at your best or when you're confident and, and I think they've they've still got the self belief, but it's like the confidence has maybe uh, ebbed and flowed a little bit for them. And that when that one all things could be going well and, and there's that one error or that one bad shot or one bad shot selection and they kinda you can kind of go within your shell and kind of anticipate, oh no, it's going to happen again. You know, like, not that, that they've said that, but that's my interpretation of it. And I've certainly been there as a player where kind of, you kind of, you sense the energy change within you and you almost kind of like create that own narrative for yourself yeah. because you're like, oh no, here we go again. How many times have you said that? on the tennis court like you get one bad play bad calls or you play the victim and, and then it just if you're if you're playing the victim then your mind kind of is so quick to correlate yep. any events that could actually showcase that is the truth you know and so i think it, it has been it has been a challenge that year and just trying to yeah trying to keep the guys positive trying to you know i think we've we've struggled with with injuries we maybe haven't been able to put the time on court in as much as we would like and you know I think there's only one way out of you know matches like this and it's kind of working hard and we haven't 
quite been able to do that for both, you know, both instances for both the guys who've been a little bit restricted in, in errors on board. And I think in the crunch moments, if you kind of know that yourself, then maybe that's why you're not executing. But, you know, it's it's such fine margins and, and such fine subtleties margins. That, that occur out on court is just, yeah. I mean, I, I think <clears throat> my love for the sport is has kind of grown exponentially since I've I've gone into this coaching role and just to be so closely linked to to the nuance and and the day-to-day and, and what can make a difference and, and what doesn't make a difference and just yeah it's it's such fine margins out there towards winning you know I think as a player I always you know reflected back on you know, good let's say you know we're playing challengers so we finally had access and we could watch back some matches and you kind of be thinking oh yeah good energy out there today i did well and then you watch it back and we're like jesus not like that am i playing like i'd advise anyone to like watch themselves as much as yeah. they can because i think it's it's you're so distorted in your view of yourself good and massively bad. massively like i remember thinking oh yeah I did this well, I did that, that well, and then you watch it back. Oh God, you did like that was. And my partner shite. didn't. And my partner didn't do that well. And my, it's, yeah. it's, it's it's no. it's a really important thing. And then and then vice versa, you know, you'd be coming off some matches thinking like, oh my God, I played rubbish, I had terrible energy, and then you watch it back, you'd be like, actually, it's not too bad. It's just one or two shots, and and in our line of work, with sudden death juices, with championship tie breaks, like. I think we're so often like if we win the eleven line, we win the last point. We're so quick to like just forget any of the bad stuff. Like, yeah, we got through it. That's perfect. <laughs> or if we lose the last point and we go down eleven line, the we're so room. quick to criticize. So like the yeah the the scale there is just is so distorted that uh, that yeah I think it's it's. It's really hard to remain objective as a tennis player because you're so caught up in your, your emotions and your feelings out in court. Do you and think? Why... Go on. No, do you, I was just just thinking there because what what you're saying, it's exactly right, and it's again it goes back to the success measure a little bit as well. You know, win good, lose bad. You know, and and we're yeah. we're, we're quite simplistic like that on the tennis court, and I I, I know, and that's our jobs as coaches to. To, to get people buying into identities, commitments, helpful attentions, you know, having intentions that you're putting out on the court. I don't know if you follow cricket at all, but the England cricket team have done a great job of this the last couple of years. They call it basball. And basically, it, it's what's what it seems to me is that they have like truly as an organization from top to bottom bought into a way of playing cricket that the way that they play the cricket is more important than the result. Like truly like, and we talk about process over outcome and we've all been there, but we, we all, we all know when we have a few losses, that's sometimes hard to, hard to, hard to stick to, but they, 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 they really have now, the byproduct. I'm not in the nuance of of England cricket, but the byproduct is I think they've won 
I think it's something like 14 out of 17 matches, you know, they've they've turned it around there, but they've obviously got a lot of people then interested in the sport. It's exciting to watch. And it feels like they're just, it's like a non-negotiable. You know, how how easy is it to do that as, as a tennis player or as a tennis team? And then specifically you as a coach of like, I asked you the question earlier when you played, when you had your match point, did you commit to the forehand return? And you said, yes. So my, my natural instinct there as a coach was, well, good. You've done that. You've committed to the right thing. That's what you're trying to do. Uh, you know, but as players, it's like, well, piss off. I lost. I don't, you know, how, how do you kind of manage, how do you manage that as a coach with, with top level players? I think it's, <clears throat> I think it's really important to be like accurate with your words. You know, I think you much as much as I have really enjoyed the influence of Louis Kaye and, and his expertise. Yep. And I'm sure he's probably been on the podcast, but I think he's got, he's such a great way to package the information and, and be accurate with his words. You know, I think one of his best lines is, you know, what's the difference between a mistake and an error? And that means like different people interpret those things totally differently. And a lot of them, inter you know, they're in, you know they're interchangeable and and but but in reality a mistake is well i don't know i'll ask you the question what is what to you that's my podcast would <laughs> <laughs> it be interesting to see if yeah like what does a mistake mean to you or what does an error mean to you are they the same or is there is there nuance in the vocabulary yeah i think it, it's how we define it i guess i, I... I guess an error, an error for me, would would probably, I would think along the lines of an error is, it's something that, in my control, that I've done wrong. You know, so it might be, I've made a bad decision. Yeah, I've, whereas a, a, a mistake would be I'd probably I'd probably I'd probably break it down into decision making and execution and I'm sorry Louis because we haven't had this discussion so if I'm getting <laughs> this wrong from what you've said but yeah I would say error error for me would be I've made a I've made a bad decision and yeah and so spot and mistake is execution yeah and, and, mistake, and I think mistake that's spot execution. on and I think that's spot on and I was recently just with a few juniors doing a little thing and like and they don't know because there's actually something to be learned from from that a mistake. If you took took the right job and you made the right decision, yeah, that's that's good. Okay, yeah. you made a mistake, but that happens. Tennis isn't perfect, so that's okay. We can move past that. I think you should grow in frustration with the amount of errors that you make, the amount of you know, the lack of discipline that you show in your decision making. You know, like I think. Yeah. Sometimes when I've been in like squad environments, those shots, those like Hail Marys, the like just on the run, just slap shots, get like praised and like people, yeah. juniors are going out to try and like almost do that. And it gets, it gets, yeah, almost applauded that people took the shot on and made it. And yeah, it comes off on the practice court. But yeah. like, you know, right to be going for that shot. Like, you know, and that's just, there was times when I was in these squad things and I was like, oh, Christ, like, I wish he didn't make that shot, you know, like, he's no business making that shot. So yeah. I think, um, I think being accurate with your words, and I'm always, I'm always impressed at 
you know, I have a long way to go in my coaching development and career. I'm, I'm far from serving these guys as best as I could. You know, I know there's, there's definite ways that I could improve and I'm always really impressed at, and, and it's quite nice to just almost take a backseat sometimes when Louis on the court and really conscious of just the amount that he shares or when he decides to share because I think that's the sign of like actually good coaches you know I remember when I was first on the tour you want to make an impact you want to you want to yeah. make I don't know like feel your make sure they know your value or your worth and, and you try and justify it and you want to like say something after everything but that was good that was bad you know like just but I think Louis has, has an incredible knack to just give the little nugget and then maybe let him make the mistake a couple of times, then he'll fire in the yeah. nugget and it has just more impact that way. I'm not sure if that actually really answers your question. Maybe we've gone off on a bit of a tangent there. No, but I think yeah. whenever a tangent takes us to Louis Kaye, it's a good tangent <laughs> to go on. Yeah. You know, because I call Louis the Pep Guardiola of doubles tennis you know and tennis in general but not to just pigeonhole him into doubles because he's an amazing tennis coach you know but his his record with with doubles players really is off the scale it's off the scale good like it's yeah it's incredible and i value every phone call every text message every minute that i get with louis you know i i really do and i i think what what you're what you're saying there and, and i want to throw this back to you on louis but the big thing I get from Louis Kai, and I think this is a massive thing for tennis coaches out there. One, his awareness of standards is outrageous. Yeah. So, so his his natural eye, because he, and I, it was actually a session with you boys. I think in Miami, um, you know, I've been with the boys in Indian Wells, and Louis hadn't been there. I think they were warming up to play a practice set, and Lloyd was volleying and. Louis just said, Lloyd, your tempo's off. Your tempo in the wall's off. Come on, man. And I was like, and then he went, watch, he actually said, watch Joe, you know, so, and, and Joe volleys through a really nice tempo. And then two minutes later, Lloyd was volleying at a completely different tempo. And, and Louis had just got off the plane, you know, and it was this kind of like just immediate view and, and, if we think about that, he's basically been around the absolute best in the world in doubles for 20, 30 years now. You know, like that yeah. is his eye just goes for it. And the second thing, and I think you're right exactly with that, is then the accuracy of of delivery. You know, and it's part of that, I think, from the player naturally comes from his his standing <laughs> as as who he is. Yeah. Um, but he, he is very accurate and the, the definitions of words. And, and I had a one, which again, sharing, we were in Rome and I'd said to the boys, right, boys, we're going to be positive. Come on the, 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 this week, you know, that, that's our big word. And yeah. uh, first practice set, first game, uh, Harry lost his serve against Neil and Wes. And he threw his racket into his bag and he was ranting and raving. And I went over and I said, Hey, Harry, I thought we were going to be positive this week. And Harry said, well, how am I going to be positive when I've just lost my serve or something like that? Yeah. And and I spoke to Louis after and he said, yeah, but it's, if, did you ask him what his definition of the word positive is? Because yeah. the definition of positive uh, for Harry might be very different 
to you, you know, and yeah. and I had a chat with Harry that night and, you know, we talked around actually the, the word positive to him actually sounds like be happy. He was almost hearing me say, come on, be happy. Yeah. Well, where I wasn't, I was the, my definition was more, come on, we've got to stay ready to find solutions here. You know, you've got to have your mind and just that, that basic understanding of language and, and how that comes across with players. And certainly I think the higher level that we get to every word can be more impactful and, yeah. and, and we have to be very, very careful um, so those are a couple of, I mean, uh, I, we'd be here all night if we were talking about the things we learned off Louis, but those are certainly a couple of things, but what's been the biggest influence that Louis had on you, you know, and, and the time that you've spent with him. Uh, but what are your kind of couple of big, big takeaways? Um, I guess I've been, I feel lucky to have experienced him both as, as a player, you know, when Joe and I kind of first started out and we managed to get some court time with him. Like to have experienced that and the standard that he sets and the precedent that he sets was was fantastic. And then just not only is the best and his eye is the best, and I completely agree with what you said, but his work ethic yeah. is just, I mean, you know, you could email him at any hour of the night and he'd almost have a reply for you minutes later. Like, I think just his dedication to his craft is... It's something that's mesmerizing, you know, how honest he is with analyzing and just connecting the dots, you know, his his yeah. vision for a player or for the sport or for the situation. And, you know, I could be sitting there scratching my head thinking, oh, how, you know, what's going on here? And then Louis would just boom, 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 boom. Just he's got this, this checklist. There's a great story about, <laughs> you obviously know Ed Curry quite well as yeah, well, yeah. do you? yeah. So Ed was coming towards the end of his very diligent himself and Tom really thorough in so, their yeah. approach to, to, to Ed's tennis. And Ed was coming to the end of his career. I think he was, you know, doing one of these MPC courses for Louis, the level five stuff. And he was one of the hitters. And I think Ed was going to be, it was in the April and Ed was to planned on retiring post Wimbledon that June, July. And uh, I think Ed had, had tried every every trick in the book to try and generate maybe a little bit more pace on the forehand side. So uh, Louis got group of you know thirty young aspiring coaches for their level five feeds in run rep. Now I don't know if he knows Ed all that well, you know, but he's obviously just seen him hit a little bit and goes, okay, yeah, working on like offensive forehands. All right, yeah, feeds on ball into. Ed, Ed hits the forehand. Okay, stop, stop, stop. One rep. What did anyone see there? Jeez, <laughs> nothing. What's this? Do this. Whatever it was. Sure enough, Ed's hitting his forehand the best he has for his last 12 weeks on tour. And it's just like those little nuggets that like attention to detail that he has is, yeah, it's, it's mind-blowing. You know, it's it's something to really aspire to, but he is for me the most impressive person I've I've ever been on court with. And I know he gets labeled a doubles coach, but I really think he's just a seriously impressive coach. And and it's not just tennis related, I think it's packaging information, it's delivering information, it is awareness of 
how to do it when it would be most impactful. I think it's yeah, is is extremely impressive, extremely impressive. He's he's, he's absolutely brilliant. I um I want to move us to you are the the coach of Joe Salisbury have have been I know in in, in various stints and you know the same with Rajiv Ram as 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 a pair at different times and I'd love to jump into that kind of individual coach stroke team coach in in a couple of minutes. However, Joe was your college roommate. Yeah, you you played with him University of Memphis. You played on the pro tour with him. How were you able and are able, still challenged by, to be able to move that from friendship, doubles partners, roommate, into top-class doubles coach who is travelling 25, 30 weeks a year, helping him win Grand Slams? How, how have you been able to, I guess, switch hats, which uh, which is yeah. which is always a challenging piece? It is, yeah. So I suppose it, it is, you know, I think sometimes it's, it's to our detriment that I'm maybe friend first, coach second, but I think sometimes it actually really benefits the relationship a lot. I think the manner in which I coach and communicate obviously really facilitates how Joe likes to be spoken to and communicated with. So that's really beneficial. You know, I think, you know, credit to Joe, I think he's he's got one of the best locus of control in terms of his own development. I went through a stage of any time I got on court with, with any player, you know, junior, would I say, oh, what do you want to do today? And 99% of the time, no one would have a clue. You know, like even other professionals, oh, I'll do a bit of this. With Joe, he knows exactly what he wants to do. Yeah. Day in, day out. And I think that's, a, that's a, you know, for people listening, that might be, just know if there's two or three things that you know you have to want to do on a certain day with your coach, just own it, just have control, take control of your own development. You know, I think sometimes when you're internally motivated, you know, if it's you that's the driving force behind your development, I think that's exponentially more powerful than relying on a coach to externally motivate you to achieve whatever it is now that's just my opinion maybe you know again yeah. everyone's journey is different but but i think if, if it really comes from within it, it's much more powerful so yeah so that's so that's our that's our approach you know I, I still default i still probably have a little bit of that insecurity about me and how i how i see myself how i view myself as a coach which is negatively impacting me but i'm very much kind of a cooperative kind of coach and I kind of, I see this, I think this, you know, what do you think? Okay, yeah, I'm feeling the same thing. And that's very much how, how the session will go and how we'll communicate. Joe will certainly have a few things that he'll want to tick off the list and make sure he addresses and I'll have the same. And, and we'll just make sure that, that we get it done. And yeah, I think if there's one thing that is maybe the number one thing I think that falls under the coach's job, uh, requirements, I suppose, would be to reassure your players. So if in the heat of the battle, Joe can look to the corner and know that that I've got his back with all the history that we have together and all that we've been through, I feel like that's that's very powerful in and of itself too. You know, to to feel that support in his corner is is a good thing for the relationship. You know, I think I think we've been through we've been through a lot, and you know, it's it's. Yeah, the 
professional aspect of, of our relationship is is a bit of a it's a bit of an awkward one you know you don't want to be having the money chat with a pal or you know criticizing no. a, a pal or you know there's there's different sides that maybe failing to yeah, to be really critical of, of one another and, and maybe letting a few things fester and maybe, maybe that comes to a head and then we kind of have it out but i think you know when you recently made a pact that we would be totally blunt and upfront and yep. especially when it comes to the tennis and i think you just know that you know really my intentions are pure my intentions are to facilitate his development in the sport as best as i can so just keep navigating me and if there's things that i'm doing or not doing just keep telling me you know like if there's yep. things that are irritating you you're gonna have to be honest and maybe that's hard for him too and equally for me sometimes if there's a few things that i think he shouldn't be doing and i don't know if it's the right thing to address it maybe in the past i've kind of shied away from it but i think our relationship is is still evolving in that sense very good yeah because i'm i like to be devil's advocate not because I necessarily like to be devil's advocate, but because I know someone listening is definitely being devil's advocate, you know? And, and I often think of that person, whoever that is and what that person's thinking. And that person I think is thinking, okay, great, but doesn't he need to be challenged as well? You know, doesn't he need to be told? And I think you've answered that with the pack that you've put in place you know, yeah. and be, to have those difficult conversations. And and that's the bit I'd like to move in next because I, wa- I want people listening to to get the nuances of, of working in the doubles world. And yeah. we are in a, in, a, in a team sport, you know, and, and that's, you know, we're both college guys. So we, we get the team bit. And I think the reason we both love college is, is because we have that in us. But tennis naturally is an individual sport we start out on this journey we go and play our first under eight tournament and you're on your own your name's in the draw you're on your own and you're playing against some other kid who's got snots running down his nose you know and you're playing against him and and the parent of that kid doesn't care about you they care about their kid you know and 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 that's kind of how it starts and then and then we all have individual coaches who just care about uh, that individual individual player and that's that's the kind of setup from the sport so i don't think it's necessarily people uh selfish in terms of they they mean to be selfish but i think the sport this i think the sport creates a selfishness yeah, your product, your surroundings. yeah and 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 then in the doubles world i kind of rocked up in turin last year and i think great top eight teams this is going to be amazing and i'm like I've never seen Mektic and Pavic practice together. Oh my God, that coach is coaching that player and that player's then with that another coach. And and and, I, and I'll be honest, I was a bit naive to it all. And I was like, what is what is going on? There seems to be a very individualized way of doing things, even though it's the team working together. And I know you've experienced both. You know, you've had times where you've been an individual coach there's been individual another individual coach working with the other player and then you've also experienced being the being the team coach give us your thoughts on on the the weird and wonderful world of individual versus team coaching on the doubles tour well yeah i think it's it is interesting how that's more the anomaly for 
these double teams to have just just individual coaches as opposed to a team coach. I think myself and yourself are among the few that I mean I really can't think of many other teams. It might just be myself and yourself that are I mean, I guess now that we have Chris Eaton involved on on maybe maybe it's just you, but certainly for a large part of the guy's career to date, it was me that was the team coach, which has its limitations as well. But I think overall to have a vision for the team, you know, I think it's 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 good to think of it as you're kind of coaching three. So I'm coaching each of the guys individually and then I'm coaching the team. Yeah. And, absolutely. and I'm trying to facilitate the team as best as I can. And in part that's managing the relationship, you know, making sure everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet, making sure that all this nuance, managing schedules, and that, you know, I think that's the tough thing. You know, tennis players are probably innately selfish. And it's maybe tough to get across to one another at times, actually it's best for this person and best for the team if he does this and if you do why, that's going to be beneficial because I think the guys have maybe, they can have a perception of, of what the other one is or isn't doing and, and that kind of can fester in their own mind and maybe create some frustration when I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think you just have to, when you have a, a team coach and he can kind of relate stories of the practice or whatever that he's on top of it and that's maybe a little bit reassuring whereas if you've got totally separate coaches then it just yeah it feels like a bit of a divide in 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 the chain so yeah it's interesting I just feel like if things don't go well with the team coach there can be direct conversation amongst the three everyone's comfortable in the three can share their inhibitions or their queries or concerns whereas if there's maybe individual coaches that player might just go to the individual coach individually expresses concerns and can vent a little bit but i don't necessarily think that anything is maybe get resolved in that way i think that maybe can create a bigger divide in the team whereas having a team coach and both players expressing concerns and me being kind of kind of the bridge of communication amongst the two i think is healthy albeit maybe sometimes for me it can be tricky because obviously my relationship with joe and albeit probably try and favor regime because i'm very conscious of my relationship yeah, yeah, with absolutely. joe that i would i would i would hate to be yeah considered favoring joe's needs over rashes yeah. yeah i would have thought throughout i probably lent more on his side yeah. of the coin more often than not but then from the lens that he views it from he just knows that dave's joe's mate like he's going to just do him so he probably thinks it's 70 30 in joe's favor when I would argue that it's maybe been different. So I think it's, you know, both of their pros and cons, but I think ultimately a vision for the team. And again, it's a unique set of circumstances in that we still have Louis involved yeah. as kind of the consultant head coach, I suppose, or something. It's fun to be part of such a professional outfit that these are the kind of chats that you're having. And obviously with a very inexperienced coach back in 2019, you know, to have been part of this team and, and and the environment was just a very steep learning curve and all that goes into our pre-match preparations you know match meeting the night night before meeting the day of debrief you know i think it's just it's a it's a constant machine that we constantly keep learning and adapting and adding that into practice you know anything that's happened in the when you watch joe and rajiv at their best 
their understanding of one another. It's 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 almost like they don't even have to play well. It's like a bonus if they play well, but they just yeah. they've got such good synergy is a word that we use that, that they yeah. work so well with one another that that it's a bonus if they're hitting the center of the racket, but they don't often have to do that. But one of the one of the most profound things I someone ever said to me and it really stuck with me actually is we're all two decisions, bad decisions away from being homeless. And and when you think about that, it's true. And to live life with that that humility, that perspective, I, I think is I think is really important because I think that we can often get ahead of ourselves and we can often get behind ourselves and down on ourselves so much. You know, it's that it, it can go both ways. And to bring that into tennis we're we're one or two points away always from from a bad moment and one but we're also one or two good points away from a good moment and and again i think you know it's 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 treating those imposters to take the 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 wimbledon saying you know in in a very similar vein and and yeah. and, 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 I, and i think that is massive and it's it's a difficult thing to do uh, as a, uh, when we're in that pressure, when we're in that pressure cooker. And, and, and it brings that word. It's a word that again, I, I, I think is massive. And I certainly didn't have enough of this as a player, but it's something that I, as a coach and academy owner, as a father, <laughs> um, as a husband, I, I do love you, Vicky, but as a husband as well, um, is, is tolerance. And and our yeah. ability to tolerate and you you mentioned it earlier and I thought it stood out like a sore thumb when you were telling your story about Belarus the Davis Cup, um, yeah. you know your racket's not turning up that used to freak you out that X Y Z but you you were able to tolerate all of those things in in that moment, whereas it does feel to me that the the doubles world isn't that full of tolerance and. Anyone that's a regular listener of the podcast, I absolutely apologize because I've told this story at least 20 times over the almost 200 episodes, but it's the Brian brothers and it's the Brian brothers who said every year we start the year well and all these new pairs are trying to come together and they can't quite, you know, they haven't quite got the chemistry going. So we just clean up for six months and then the last six months of the year, everyone's starting to play well and we really struggle. <laughs> And yeah. then the year ends and they all split up. And then the next year, we, 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 we clean up again while everyone tries to come together. Now, as as twins, I guess you're almost forced through <laughs> genetics and blood to be tolerant of each other. You know, it kind of yeah. comes, it kind of goes with the territory. Um, whereas I, I, I can't help thinking that in the in the world of doubles, there isn't enough tolerance. And I want to join that point up to potentially the individual coach piece as well because one of my thoughts is when you have these individual coaches okay great it's certainly not dissing it because there's been a lot of success with that system but if there is a player that's bitching and mourning a bit for, via one person who's facilitating it you can almost manage the relationship if there's a player bitching and mourning to one coach and the other one's bitching and mourning to the other coach it take it takes a lot more to be able to bring that together, and it maybe speeds up that process. Um, you know, we've seen on the men's side, and Mektic Pavic, you know, recently recently split. Middlecup Mies made semi-finals of French Open. 
um, and then pretty much jump ship from that partnership pretty quickly. You know, it, it, it doesn't seem like there's that many that stick together. Raj and Joe have got the, the fruits of that uh, five years of a solid relationship. Is that something that maybe is just healthy and it's, and it's natural in a, in a relationship that is a very much a, a business relationship in, in, in lots of ways. Or is there something to be said for maybe developing a little bit more tolerance and pushing through the tough times? Yeah, I think there's, I think if they have a very healthy professional relationship, I wouldn't say they're best friends, but I mean, they enjoy a couple rounds of golf and they do this in X and Y together. But I think it's just been an asset to the team to how transparent they've been. Yeah. And, and sharing concerns and, you know, particularly, I think Rajiv has been has okay. been great and and shown a real eagerness to learn and his transition to to like doubles and and to be part of the Louis Kaye system and and Joe obviously very much a product of that system. So like they have equal standing in the relationship and there's not much ego, albeit that maybe Rajiv is the better player. I don't think he he conducts himself in that manner, which is maybe an exception you would say i think um he doesn't have an inflated ego about him and i think he enables and he's willing and keen anyways he's too coachable you know he's he's up for hearing a lot of stuff that maybe he could just take what he knows on board and trust it and have that clarity in himself and and maybe just is effective so so i think that's a big part of, of of the guy's lasting relationship is maybe having a a central coach that's that's managed the pair of them and been able to kind of delegate any concerns and they've always been pretty frank and coming to the table themselves and and, and learning out the the queries because yeah i think there's you know it's only natural it is a relationship you know like it's it's maybe even more intense it's it's like it's like a working relationship so you're traveling 20 plus weeks a year with this person having highs and lows sacrifice from both ends you know there's there's a lot at stake so i think uh tennis players in the past are guilty of the grass is always greener and, and jumping ship and, and and sometimes i don't always think that that's maybe the best approach so yeah so i think that's well, john raj is definitely a product of that like you so said what a what a yeah, successful think- career fight you know the over the five years the, the trophies that they've won and the the results that they've won. You know, I think they're a great example to many pairs out there of what of what can happen when you when you work at that relationship. Because as good as Raj is, he also hadn't had that success previously. You know, True. and yeah. you know, and he, and he's obviously a, he's a top, top, top tennis player. But you know, that ability to work with that relationship and get the right connection and synergy that you've said is yeah. what is is what makes makes the team regard almost regardless of how good the player is in some ways. And and on that, Dave, as well, it's if we take the final interim last year, we got Mektic Pavic not there anymore. You know, they, they looked, I guess they were probably the last team on the men's side that just dominated. It was back in 2021, there was a complete domination for six months. Yeah. Um it does feel very much like it's open right now. It's yeah. You know, obviously, Wes and Neil World number one. They've just won Wimbledon, uh, their, their their first Grand Slam. But almost kind of coming out of being a coach of John Raj, like and for, and forget them for a minute. 
you know, yeah. who who are for those listening, who are who are some of the exciting teams coming through at the minute? Maybe some teams to watch that you've kind of had your eye on and you can you can see them see them coming. Well, I think I think probably Wes and Neil, I would I would assume will be the team that will you know, I think capturing their first slam together and I think that will really spur them on. I think they'll be a tough team to beat over the next few months until the end of the year. Obviously, Dade Krajicek, I think, pre-French, having won Monte Carlo, having won the French Open, you know, there was a period there where I thought that they were going to be maybe one of the more dominant teams in the space. They're pretty good side and made it to Turin last year. They're very exciting. Harry Lloyd have obviously been doing exceptionally well, and I think you shared it with me earlier on that last week is their first first round loss in nine months as, as a unit, so that's a very good consistent start, so yeah, I think there's a lot of teams that uh, that are showing a lot of us. Zelinski needs, it seems like once they get on the streak and get a few matches under their belt, then they're quite dangerous and pose they're a threat. F- they're f- first round are winners, aren't they? They're first rounder winners, yeah. Like so, I, I think they're a good example. I got a little bit of insight into this actually. That they have, uh, certainly Zelinsky, he's very, he's so happy that he's yeah. kind of made it that yeah. he now feels like there's no pressure anymore, which I think is a so 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 they have they have quite a um a bit like what I'm saying with Basball. <laughs> you know, of the cricket, they they almost have a way of playing, and it's a quite non-negotiable. And it's like we're just gonna we're just gonna take it on, play with high tempo, get after our returns, and yeah. we know we know when we're on, we're going to be really good. Um, yeah. But they've literally finalist of Australian Open win at win in Rome, and hardly done anything apart from those two. You know, which is which is amazing. The other one I would like to mention, I think they're lovely lads as well, is uh, Giel and Vliegen. You know, oh yeah, and, yeah, and they seem to really be starting to get it together. You know, obviously yeah, fi- yeah, they had, open. they had a tough year last year. All right, they're a threat. They be we lost to them at the beginning of the year in in Pune. Played a good match against them. I think it was six and five or five and six or something like that. But but high level and and when they're feeling good, they're dangerous. You know, they 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 both can serve very well, and there's an element of fear factor in their return games where they can light it up and and. They're quite flashy, and it seems like they're they're getting their consistency going. But yeah, I think they've they're a good example of, of a team that's stuck together. Yeah, obviously had a pretty pretty stellar run at, at Roland Garros a few weeks ago, and I'm sure looking for another couple of healthy runs before the end of the year. Now, I think even from that talk we've had there, I think we proves the point. It's open, you know, and yeah. it's I'm sure you know we all uh, as 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 coaches of a couple of the top pairs, we'll be. We'll be having those conversations that you get the things right. There's there's plenty of opportunity left. There's a hell of a lot of tournaments left to be played for. A lot of points, a lot of money for for these guys. So all the best to to you and the boys. I will look forward to seeing you out in Cincinnati. Hopefully, hopefully my boys and your boys will have a few more wins under their belt by then. But my last question before we go into the quick fire round, Dave, is yourself. 32, 33 years old, you know, had a fantastic career to date, you know, with your with your playing, you know, what, what you've achieved and then going on and doing a brilliant job as a as a coach. 
is the future coaching for you? Is this, are you set? Are you the, are you the guy on the tour now for the next 20, 30 years? Is there ambitions to do something different? What is the, what is the future hold for Dave O'Hare? Yeah, great question. I think for the foreseeable, it's, it's on the tour. And I think things will probably get more challenging. I think if family was a potential for me, then, then I think my desire to be away from them for so many weeks might diminish but certainly for for where i am right now with my girlfriend it works for us for me to be on the road she's able to to join for a few weeks and and yeah but if children were to enter the equation then i think i would i would uh i'd have to rethink my my schedule a little bit but after you, yeah. after you after you get no sleep in the first yeah. few weeks, you'll realize that it's the best place to be. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So um, so for me, yeah, I think I think that tennis has always been a big part of my life, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity that it's opened the door for me for, for many different things, and and I would like to to try and give back. You know, I think I would enjoy a role back in Ireland in some capacity and um, hopefully for the coming tie I'll be hopefully I'll be playing but I think there's you know, a vice captain role potentially yeah obviously it'd be a great honour to to give back to Irish tennis and if that was Davis Cup captain in, in the coming years that would be a role that I would enjoy and yeah I think I'm in a very fortunate position to be in the position that I'm in and I would like to try and share and kind of bolster the level within Irish tennis and you know I think as we as we are right now we're a little bit short of soldiers on on the road so it'll be it'd be fun to see you know a few more Irish names and, and maybe get a few Irish players contending in a few slams you know 10-12 years down the line and, and that'll be something that I do but certainly for where I'm at right now really enjoying kind of being close to the top of the game and, and find that there's no better way to to learn and refine your craft than, than where I'm currently at. And I know I still got a long way to go to be the coach that I want to be and to try and have the impact that I want to have. And not even just from a tennis standpoint, but even just from, you know, like you're kind of saying, just like a an appreciation or a, a, a life standpoint of just like, you know, a lot of these players are, really privileged and they could show a bit more gratitude for that you know i think a lot of the mentality on the tour is is maybe not the case and i think they lose touch of their humble beginnings so maybe you know i certainly remember where i started and, and a lot of the struggles that i faced along the way and i think a lot of the other players maybe have lost sight of that in in some ways but yeah i think it's definitely a great challenge to to try and have an impact in 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 players' careers at, at all levels, you know, I kind of found myself at the top of the game, but, but I enjoy the the individual sessions that I do back in Ireland or the doubles clinics that I do with beginners. You know, I think it's it's fun to see progress ultimately. I think, yeah. when you, and in many ways, it's maybe more rewarding when you see like real tangible change after an hour of insight and, and to be valued like that feels great. And with these guys, you know, what separates a good and a bad day of practice, just executing a millimeter inside the line or a millimeter outside the line. Mistakes are errors. Yeah. Well, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, mini, so mini tennis red for you, because that is where that is where you get the biggest range of change. If you really? do, yeah. if you do a good job, it's incredibly rewarding. We know what your next job is, Dave. But let's go. see, let's see what you like at quick fire round. All time favorite doubles player. I suppose it was always fun watching the Bryans. So I can't really single them out, but I'll say the Bryans. The perfect partner for you on the doubles court and why? Uh, Roger, I feel like he'd make up for a lot of my inadequacies out there. <laughs> the Woodies are the Bryans. I've already said Brian, so I'll go you're, with them. You're showing your age. Yeah. Uh, you're too young. Rafa or Roger? I admire them equally for different reasons. Get off I, the I fence. Think, uh, I'll say one thing. I think for me nobody appreciates being out on the court as much as Rafa. And I think that's why he should be the spearhead of the tour. I think that is an unbelievable attribute for the number one player to have for the most appreciated player. I think he relishes and respects everything that happens out there on the court. So I think I'll go Rafa for that. Favourite Grand Slam? Australia. Serve or return? Serve. I or reg? I. This is the formations for the you not known out there. What's one piece of advice for a club doubles player? E plus R equals O. <laughs> like it. What, what's one rule change you would have in doubles? We talked about this only recently. Maybe the server's partner starting behind the service line and it being a foot fault if he walked inside. So maybe the point could unfold a little bit. I think that could be interesting to see how that would unfold. It wouldn't wouldn't be good for Raj, I tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> he is close to that net. Five yeah. sets or three at Grand Slams? Uh, I think three. And men's doubles? The, yeah. yeah, three. Who's going to win the US Open men's doubles? Not allowed to say Raj and Joe. Oh, we're going for three in a row. Please let it be us. <laughs> I'll let you have it if it's three in a row. What does control <laughs> the controllables mean to you? Control the controllables to me giving yourself the best possible possibility for success. I think being solutions orientated and weighing the scales in your, yeah, in your favor, giving yourself the best chance to perform well uh, by controlling the controls. I think most players are, have a great ability to state the problem and not many players actually find a way to solve the problem. Very good. And who should our next guest be on control the controllables? Um, geez, you've had so many close to 200. Um, you're responsible for getting them on, by the way. Oh, am I? Shoot, before you say Barack Obama or someone, <laughs> I mean, maybe this is counter, but it'd be interesting to see. Well, it'd be fun stories of if Fabio Mole from the Functional Tennis podcast came on. We, hey, us podcasts, we stick together, there's plenty of space for us all, but he's been on. Has he been on? Okay, um. But well, one podcast that I'm really enjoying at the minute is your man Stephen Bartlett, Diary of a CEO. Yeah. He'd be a good guest. Not that he's probably got any tennis background, but have you got have you got the hookup? Yeah, no, I'm afraid <laughs> not. <laughs> so you're you're someone else I'm gonna have to chase because we've got to keep passing this baton on. But I'm sure over the next couple of weeks we can have a think. We can pick it up in the States and get the next guest on. But Dave, uh honestly, mate brilliant loved loved hearing your story your insight just nice for me to have a chance to sit and chat you know you 
you'd think we'd get more time out there than than we actually do, but we we need to do it again, maybe with the cameras, the cameras yeah. off, and uh, sure. all, all the best to John Raj over the next couple of weeks, and and look forward to look forward to catching up, but keep up the great yeah. work. Seeing Cincy, top man. Thank you, Dave. Cheers, Dan. Thanks so much. And as ever, I have the CTC producer and my beautiful wife Vicky next to me. You see, he's throwing that in there because he goes off tomorrow morning. He's trying to get my good books. <laughs> you got to get the bonus points in in whilst you can. This is life of a travel traveling tennis coach. Any traveling coaches will know that. And we <laughs> if need... I hear "see you in Cincy, Dan," one more time. <laughs> well, I do have a twenty-hour flight before I see anyone in Cincy uh, yes. and that's in about five hours time so uh, it's not going to be um, it's not going to be too clever for me for the first little bit but yeah I'm excited to get back out there with with Harry Heliavara and Lloyd Glasspool and and see what the next few weeks hold. And jokes aside about you going away how are you feeling about it because it's been a bit of a it's been a bit of a stop and start few weeks for you guys since Harry's had his second child. Yeah, it has, and and I mean it's it's never easy. I think in any anyone's year when you you lose a little bit of momentum, you know, it could be injuries, could be loss of form, and in this case, it's it's Harry's family. You know, a second second child, a, a a little a little boy that's arrived, which is which is fantastic, and I think that trumps anything on the tennis court. Um, but being really happy to see how quickly they've got up to speed, actually. You know, in Washington, the 500 event had a couple of really good wins, match points to, in the semifinals to make the final. Uh, so the boys are, are in a good place and, you know, they they love the hard courts, uh, as do Joe and Raj. You know, and all the British guys have got each other's backs, you know, and we're all happy for, for Neil and Wes winning Wimbledon, but it, it just whets the appetite for, for the teams that are just behind to see if they can get a Grand Slam to their name as well. So that's going to be the, the name of the game. That's what we're all after. And it's exciting to be, to be a part of. I really enjoyed actually hearing you both talk about um, the doubles because you both do have a similar setup. Um, and hearing him say how he looks at it like he's coaching two individual players and then the team. So there's three roles he he kind of has and he has he's working to facilitate the team to be the best that they can be. And, he, and he's absolutely spot on with that. And we, we talked about that, you know, tennis players traditionally are, are selfish, you know, it's, a, it's an individual sport. So we still have to treat each player as an individual you know, even though they are part of a team, but then it's about how you can find the right synergies, how you can gel that together to to make the partnership work from a tactical standpoint, yes, but also just from a from a from a human standpoint. You know how they how they work together, how how they understand each other, how they like to communicate. You know, there's so many different or aspects. not in some cases, yeah, or, or or not, and that's why we do see a lot of these teams splitting up as well because. Any relationship's hard, you know. Any any relationship in this in this world is hard, you know. And relationships can get stale. And if people aren't communicating correctly, and and they're not mutually benefiting from each other in terms of what they're putting out on the court, then things can go sour quite quick. So that's a big big part of of what our coach's job is as a doubles coach. And certainly for me personally, having the almost the team coach 
role as well as the individual coach role means that you can facilitate that a little bit easier um, whereas with with some teams you've got quite a few coaches involved and and that's just more relationships more relationships to manage but no I loved it I love talking to Dave and and I think that's the big thing for me about Dave he's he's such a great role model out there you know we've talked a lot about this in the podcast that Carlos Alcaraz, Iga, Iga Sriontek, you know, they're the, the superstars of the game, the up-and-coming superstars. But actually, look at a Dave O'Hare, you know, from, you know, humble background, a fourth child, didn't play a whole lot of tennis, started to kind of top it up a little bit more when he was 15, 16, just went about his normal life, yet he's still able to get a scholarship into a Division One university and not just do that, not just go and just live the party life and get his degree, but then go and just massively improve and develop his game through college tennis. You know, finished his, his final year, I think, like we said, number three in the NCAAs in, in the doubles. And then on the back of that, got wild cards you know and these are the things that you know the opportunities that come from a successful college career are massive got wild cards into ATP in Memphis you know obviously roommate of Joe Salisbury it's a lovely story that yeah. they're now working together and you know won grand slams in, together and then he's represented his country he's and, and now now at age 33 is a grand slam winning coach and still plays Davis Cup and keeps himself in great shape, plays very well. There's actually a, a little fun story in Miami. I think it was Rajiv had a little injury and couldn't make the practice very last minute. So so Dave actually jumped in and played a set with Joe against Harry and Lloyd. I don't know if memory serves me correct, but I've got a feeling Joe and Dave might have won the set 7-5. You know, if not, it was a very close. It was a, it was a, it was a close set either way. And that just shows that Dave's level still is very much I was going to say, so there. he's still got a really good level. He, no, he, he absolutely does. And he's in great shape. And, you know, I, I really mean it. You know, he's, he's a hardworking guy. You know, he's incredibly conscientious. You, you hear him talking about, you know, how he's how he's wanting to learn all the time, you know, he's a real student of the game. And then he's, he's been persistent and he's put himself, and if you get those sort of things in place, we talk about it all the time, you won't go too far wrong. Uh, and being a good guy and being someone that you want to be around. Uh, so I would certainly say, you know, role models, yes, have your superstars that you look up to, but also have your Dave O'Hares that you look up to as well, because they're, they're, the, they're the real stories and, and heroes of our sport as well. It is an awesome story, but I mean, what I loved hearing was when he said how his love for the sport has grown, I think he said exponentially since taking on this coaching role. And you think, wow, at that point in his life, is he kind of getting a bit bored of it? But no, he's saying, I mean, you, you could tell the way he was talking as well, how much like the passion that he has for tennis and, and, and still growing. I think that's maybe an advantage as well of not overdoing it as a junior. You know, I think, you know, if we do anything too much, it can become a little bit boring and we can go through ups and downs with it. And we see these these juniors that are that are pushed and pushed and pushed. And I certainly experienced that, you know, traveling the world from a very young age and 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 falling a little bit out of love with the sport at, at certain times and and absolutely fell back in love with it over the last few years but yeah if we take we we take Dave's tennis age it's probably quite young still relatively 
you know, and Johnny Murray, the same. Remember, Johnny at 18 had never really travelled, you know, and I always felt that when, when I was travelling with Johnny as a player, he, he he hadn't done it to death yet, you know. So I think there's a lot there's a lot to be said. It's a, it's a long journey, so parents coaches and players out there don't feel that you have to fit everything in now you know allow allow the journey to unfold and that certainly happened with Dave and talking about love you both had uh, a lot of love shall I say respect admiration for for Louis Louis Caillet legend you know he, he, he really is he's I, I, I can't speak highly enough and you everything know, he was saying I was like this is exactly what Dan says all the time <laughs> yeah I mean I really can't I mean they, they, like somebody who uh, and, and, and actually and I'm sure I've shared a couple of those stories uh, previously you know my first couple of encounters with Louis I was like who is this guy like he is mental like and he doesn't he didn't give any time to me and you know he made me work for that relationship um, but he just the Pep Guardiola of, of tennis for me. You know, he's the knowledge and, and for me and Dave, I think the gratitude we have that Louis is our mentor. You know, we have Louis on speed dial. You know, we can call him at any point. We're in touch, you know, on a daily basis. And, you know, I can only speak for myself, but over the last nine months, the amount that I've learned from that man is just incredible. And, and I said this to Louis actually uh, a, a few months ago, before I even knew him, I would learn so much from Louis. And he was a massive influence on my career, you know, just from all the videos and the, and the readings and the many things that I'd, I'd, I'd looked up on him. Um, but I used to think what he was was just a bag of knowledge. But now that I've got to know Louis, he's a bag of knowledge with the ability to to, to pass on that knowledge through relationship building and through through the way that he packs up that knowledge and, and gives it to the players and to the coaches. So very, very grateful. British tennis should be, and, and I know are, incredibly grateful and, and lucky oh, to success, have had him. Yeah, yeah, success on the double side the last... 15 years has just been phenomenal if you haven't listened to his episode on control the controllables it is well worth going back and having still a listen. the most downloaded still yeah number one and there's a reason for that you yeah. know i actually spoke to louis on it and if louis listening now sorry for sharing this louis but louis said why do people want to listen to me i'm, I'm boring i don't tell stories you know i'm not entertaining you know and he is but his education is that good that it's worth listening to, you know, and that's that is the big, big, big thing that people will be listening for. Listening to with a notebook and pen. Get it into <laughs> your veins, Louis Kaye, incredible man. I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who hasn't heard it yet. And we can't not talk this week about Caroline Wozniacki making her comeback three and a half years after announcing her retirement. Two kids later, just awesome. And Freddie Nielsen nailed it, huh? On yeah, the, on he, the did, review he did. I think there was people out there that were like, this is a gimmick, this is not true, this is, you know, yeah, right, let's see. She comes back, plays one match. Uh, to come back, win two and two in her first match, um, played some incredible points. To then go set three love down to the Wimbledon champion, Andrusova. And then won four games in a row to go 4-3 up. Lost a tight set, 7-5. It was getting so exciting. I was like, oh, come her, on. Her level's obviously there, you know. And uh, well, Freddie said, didn't he, she's not, she's not coming back because she's bored. She's coming back because she believes she can compete with the best players in the world. And, you know, not a bad, not a bad start. No, not at all. So all, all the best to Caroline. It'll be exciting to see how, how the next few months go and if her body holds up and... 
you know, she starts to put these matches together. But I think it's a it's a great story that we we've got on the women's side. And a wild card into U.S. Open. Yeah, she she's not going to struggle for wild cards, and <laughs> and rightly so. She's going to put she's going to put bums on seats. You know, she's she's a superstar of the game. She deserves those wild cards. She's taking it seriously. She's obviously in great shape. So. Um, yeah, it's all it's all building to a, a, a fantastic fourth Grand Slam of the year in a couple of weeks. This is the slam where I really don't get much sleep <laughs> for two weeks, staying up late watching all the matches. Um, we said it in the last episode, we're edging, edging closer to 200th episode of Control the Controllables and we have our target in mind of who we want as our guest for our 200th episode. For our 100th, we had Nick Volatieri, who was awesome. And 200, um, we talk about the baton being passed, but it's well and truly in your hand to see if you can get Sir Andy Murray on. How are you getting on? <laughs> Gentlemen, don't tell. <laughs> but what I, what, I w- what I will say is 199 is going to be a corker. I mean... Jan Stotchus, the performance director of Czech Tennis. Czech Tennis, who are absolutely rocking the world of tennis right now. I've been for 15 years, got this conveyor belt of of player after player after player, Grand Slam finalists, Wimbledon winners. Um, you know, So Jan is coming on as, as 199. I, I can't wait to have that conversation. There's so much I want to know about Czech Tennis. Um, and yeah, that's you know I'm a, I'm a tennis player, Vicky. I only look one ahead, <laughs> you know, one point one point at a time. So that'll be that'll be one nine nine coming up. And let's see, we'll see where. Watch this space. We'll see where the next the the next ones in the future take us. I feel but like I, we've talked it up so much now. If you don't deliver, it's going to be such a disappointment. I feel on, for I, that two hundredth guest if it's not Andy, Andy Murray. Andy <laughs> Murray doesn't do podcasts, you know so. <laughs> Let's remove any expectation on Andy Murray coming on and doing the (laughs) podcast. But enjoy the next one that's coming with you in a few days' time. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan, and we are Control the Controllables.